For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. All right, we're going to be looking at 2 Corinthians 13, verse 1 through 14. And I entitled this, Introspection in the Christian Life. Paul begins 2 Corinthians 13, in verse 1, by saying, This will be my third visit to you. A little bit of background. Paul probably wrote the book of 1 Corinthians during his third missionary journey, while he spent about two and a half years in the city of Ephesus. About a year later, he wrote this book, the book of 2 Corinthians, and there's a pretty tight window from when he wrote this letter to when he was captured in Jerusalem and finally was imprisoned there for several years. So, Paul must have visited um, the city of Corinth sometime in between the first visit that he had and this other visit that happened shortly before he was arrested in Jerusalem. He says, without any sort of introduction, every matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. And he's quoting freely from the Old Testament, the book of Deuteronomy, where Moses talks about how in civil cases, if an individual is charged with wrongdoing, there must be two or three witnesses to establish the facts in order to secure a conviction. And so Paul just brings this out seemingly out of nowhere. And commentators have a variety of different interpretations for what Paul meant by this. On the one hand, it may be that the Corinthians were criticizing Paul, accusing him that he was just simply preaching the gospel for money and questioning his credibility, as we've seen over the last few weeks. So it might be that Paul says, the next time I see you guys, if you have a serious charge against me, I want you to make sure that you have two or three witnesses to establish your accusation. Another way of looking at this is that Paul was talking about some of the, moral, the rampant moral wrongdoing that was taking place in the city. So he was suggesting, like what Jesus said in uh, Matthew chapter 18, that if somebody is trapped in a lifestyle of destructive moral wrongdoing, that if they are determined to continue along their lifestyle and insist that they want to be a part of the church, that you should bring two or three people to come and bear some, some uh, tension to help that person realize that they are ensnared in this destructive lifestyle. Verses 2 and 3 sort of, I think, validate that interpretation where Paul says, I already gave you a warning when I was with you the second time. I now repeat it while absent. On my return, I will not spare those who sinned earlier or any of the others, since you are demanding proof that Christ is speaking through me. So he says, I give you this warning for the second time that on my return, I will not spare those who sinned earlier uh, or anybody else. So Paul must have given the Corinthian believers a warning Prior or subsequent to his first letter, which you know is just one long rebuke of all the things that they've done wrong, and so now he says, "Look, I don't want to have to come in here and exercise my authority as an apostle and have to discipline 
the individuals who are refusing to turn away from their way of life. Also, when you look back at chapter 12, verse 20 and 21, Paul says, I'm afraid that when I come, I won't like what I find, and you won't like my response. I'm afraid that I will find you quarreling, that there's going to be jealousy, anger, selfishness, slander, gossip, arrogance, and disorderly behavior. Yes, I'm afraid that when I come again, I'll be grieved because many of you have not given up your old sins. You have not repented of your impurity, sexual immorality, and your eagerness for lustful pleasure. So when he visited the second time, he was really disappointed in what he found that apparently they had not listened to his first letter. And so he says, upon my third visit, I'm hoping that that you guys are going to have a a change of mind here, that I'm not going to see the same things. Later in chapter 13, verse 10, it's clear that Paul does not want to be in a collision course with the Corinthians because he says, this is why I write these things when I'm absent, that when I come, I may not have to be harsh in my use of authority. The authority the Lord gave me for building you up, not for tearing you down. He's like, look, I really don't want to have to use or assert my authority if I don't have to. In fact, I'd prefer to use my authority to build you up, not not having to come in there and raise some tension with you unnecessarily. And I think that's interesting because as a Christian leader, I think it's important that a Christian leader exercise restraint in the use of their authority and instead use their authority to build people up just like Paul did. He says in verse 3 and 4 that He is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For to be sure, Jesus was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by God's power. Likewise, we are weak in him, yet by God's power, we will live with him to serve you. So he turns their attention to Jesus and he says, look, when you you look at Jesus and his life, it wasn't because of weakness that he died on the cross. It was that he set aside his right to rule in heaven and put on the limitations of human flesh to come and die. So it was a voluntary choice. It wasn't because he was weak that he did that. And now that he's ascended back to the Father and God has established his authority once again, Jesus uh, possesses incredible power. And He's giving the Corinthians this category for the paradox in his behavior that even though he appears weak among them, it's not because he's weak or that he doesn't have authority, but that he's actually using restraint just like Jesus did. He says in verse 5, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you unless, of course, you fail the test? So Paul actually turns the tables, uh, the table on the Corinthians. He's been on the defensive this entire time trying to defend his credentials as an apostle. He's answering charges that people have launched against him and who he is. And now he says, look, I'm done answering questions. What about you? Examine yourself. Are you actually in the faith? Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you unless, of course, you fail the test? 
So he calls on the Corinthians to spend a little bit of time doing self-reflection. And I think many religions view introspection as essential, including many schools of thought within Christianity that part of what it means to be a spiritual person is to engage in intense introspection almost on a daily basis. There are some Christian authors who are very famous and very influential who argue that it's important that on a daily basis you take an inventory of your sins and that you try to figure out what are the idols of your heart. In other words, the things that you place above God in your life. But I think the Bible differentiates healthy self-examination, which Paul talks about right here, with unhealthy introspection, which you often find among Christians. So why don't we try to figure out the differences between this, starting with the latter, unhealthy introspection. When it comes to unhealthy introspection, I think when we engage in introspection, we're attempting to judge our subjective feelings with our own subjective feelings. You see, you see the problem with that? It's hard to be objective about yourself when you're looking at yourself using your own subjectivity. And I like what Psalm 19 verse 12 says, where, Paul, where David says, how can I know all the sins lurking in my heart? Cleanse me from these hidden faults. What a vivid word picture he gives all of these sins and motives that are lurking in my heart. That's a pretty accurate portrayal, I think, of what goes on where a lot of times we're not really aware of our problems. And I think that a lot of times we're so inert with our own problems that it's hard to see that we have them. One time I was hanging out over at a friend's house and he lives by the train tracks near 71. And you could hear this rumbling coming, and uh, it sounded like a train was literally going to come through his living room. And I said to him and his wife, I said, what is that? And they were like, what's what? They didn't even notice. I mean, day after day, year after year, they'd heard the train pass by their house, and they they were completely oblivious to it. And in the same way, I think that because we're so inundated with our own wrong motives, and since we're inundated with our problems, that it's sometimes hard to be objective and see that we have those problems. Also, introspection may lead to a sin focus. When you're just spending time thinking about yourself and your problems, it inevitably leads to this focus on your sin and the issues that you have, where you're spending most of your time telling God, I'm sorry, please forgive me for all these things that I've done. And instead, you know, God probably wants us to just relate to him because after all, if we have a relationship with him through Jesus Christ, he's forgiven us for all our sins. So you can imagine how kind of annoying that must be from God's standpoint for us to constantly be telling him, I'm sorry for this thing. I'm sorry for this other thing. Apologizing. It's like a friend who 
is just apologizing to you for something they've done wrong, and you're like, look, I forgive you, okay? Can we talk about something else? And I'm sure that as we're going in there beating our breasts saying, you know, God, I'm just so bad, I can't believe I did this again, that God's like, let's just move on. Christ has forgiven you for what you've done. Instead, why don't we spend a little bit of time in gratitude? What about spending a little bit of time talking about people that you care about and how you can help them out? What about spending time just reflecting on the relationship that we have? God would much rather us relate to him than come in and have to give a long list of our problems. Thirdly, morbid introspection may actually lead to despair. It's easy where we are just focused on ourselves to get to a point where we are just ruminating over all of our problems, ways that we've messed up, and we find ourselves spiraling in this vortex of just self-pity and despair. I like how Charles Spurgeon, the 19th century preacher and writer, puts it. He says, now introspection, like retrospection, is a useful thing in a measure, but it can readily be overdone. And then it breeds morbid emotions and creates despair. Some are always looking into their own feelings. A healthy man hardly knows whether he has a stomach or a liver. It's your sickly man who grows more sickly by the study of his own inward complaints. Too many wound themselves by studying themselves. I can resonate with that. Where you're just fixated on your problems and you think by analyzing your problems and trying to figure it out on a granular level that somehow that's going to make you feel better and by the end of two hours of doing that, you feel worse. Kind of reminds me of this meme that says, I don't always go on WebMD, but when I, when I do, I learn I'm going to die soon. <laughs> I mean, we've all had an experience like that. You know, I woke up a couple months ago with a sore neck, and then I Googled it, and to my surprise, I had a high probability that I had spinal meningitis. <laughs> and you know, that's the way it is with us. We, we, we look inward, we start rooting around in our problems, and those problems start to magnify and they get worse, and it can lead to despair. It raises this question, are you engaging in unhealthy introspection? And if so, how would you even know? I think, first of all, unhealthy uh, introspection is something that, that really um, is characterized by what you might call paralysis by analysis. I remember hearing that a long time ago, that it's easy when you start looking inward to contract this paralysis by analysis where you get to a place where you are just constantly analyzing yourself to the point where you're frozen. You can't move forward. You can't think about anyone else. And I think that this happens as a result of a few things. First of all, we might face criticism for others. The fact is, anytime you step out to serve, you are going to be a target for criticism. And guess what? The larger your role, the larger the target. And I think that whenever we encounter criticism from someone that's constructive, 
and well-intended. I think we should listen in those cases. But sometimes we encounter criticism that's real nebulous and non-constructive. And in those cases, I don't think that we should ruminate over those criticisms because if we do that, we're going to end up having a lot of problems. We're going to end up burning out. What about spiritual hypochondria? This is where you are so attuned to moods that you have or feelings that any slight fluctuation in our mood we interpret as being endemic of some sort of big problem in our lives. And so we think to ourselves, you know, I don't feel like serving tonight, even though I should feel that way. And so that probably means that I'm just faking it or that I don't really love God. When in reality, that's just sort of the normal course of things where on the one hand, we want to serve God, but there's this there's this uh, force within us, this, this nature that combats the things of God. And I think a lot of times this can happen on the heels of us working through some stuff that maybe God has, bring, has brought up in our lives. You know, some of us have suppressed things that have happened, you know, many years ago, and now God is bringing all that stuff to the surface and we're having to deal with it. Or maybe God has exposed an issue in our lives. And so it's easy, I think, to get into a place where we are examining ourselves constantly. There's intense interest. I wonder what else is down there. And so we find ourselves spiritually spelunking on a daily basis, trying to, trying to dig into the dirt within ourselves. And that could be a real trap. What about second-guessing complex decisions? You know, even if you've spent time thinking about, praying about, weighing a decision, and finally you think you're making the best decision you possibly can with the information available at that time, and yet you find yourself days, months, maybe years later looking back and thinking with regret, I screwed up. I made the wrong decision. And it was life-altering. And it doesn't account for the fact that God is actually sovereign. That at the end of the day, we can, we can use our reason to conclude this is the best decision that I can make in this situation. But ultimately, I have to trust that God is going to see me through this. That he has my best interest in mind. I love how J. Oswald Sanders puts it. He says, don't dig up and doubt what you've sown in faith. You just need to move forward and trust that you tried to make the best informed spiritual decision you could and leave the rest up to God. Now, is there ever a time when you should engage in introspection? Because it sounds like we're saying that it's kind of negative. You shouldn't do that. Well, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 3 through 5, I care very little if I'm judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I don't even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that doesn't make me innocent. It's the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time, but wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what's hidden in darkness and expose the motives of men's hearts. So the Corinthians were criticizing him, saying that he was preaching with these 
hidden motives. And he said, look, I, I evaluated my own conscience and I feel pretty clear about my motives. So guess what? I'm not going to spend time thinking about it. I'm not going to go and, and try to take an inventory of my motives. But I trust that God at the appointed time will bring up issues in my life when he sees fit. And that's been my experience where you know, I'm not sitting around trying to dissect my motives on a daily basis because if, if I did that, it'd be very painful. I mean, practically everything you do for God or to help other people has some sort of mixture of selfish motive in there. But I believe that God will expose motives at, at the right time. And he does this in a, in a number of ways. I think, first of all, he'll do it through our actions. At times, we'll step out to serve or we'll do something that helps us to realize that there is an underlying motive behind certain things that we do that we didn't realize. And we'll see this in stages as we grow with God. I remember as like almost a brand new Christian, I felt this drive to go and serve because I heard this teaching where somebody was talking about experiencing the excitement of following God comes from serving him. And so I was like, I just want to serve someone in the home church. And so naturally the Holy Spirit led me to serve the most attractive girl in our home church. <laughs> and you know, I helped her install a stereo and bought her lunch, and I'm like, yeah, you know, just trying to be spiritual here. <laughs> and uh, afterward, you know, God revealed to me, he's like, you know, it was cool that you served her, but at the same time, there was, there was an ulterior motive there. And I didn't feel bad about it, but it made me realize that practically anything we do contains an element of selfish motive in it. But I do think that there are cases where we are doing things for the wrong motive most of the time, and God wants to bring that to the surface. Otherwise, it's just going to eat away at our spiritual life. Also, God may reveal our motives through others. God, people may, may come into our lives, and they'll make an observation about something we've done and we're able to connect that with an underlying motive. Some sort of behavior where maybe, you know, in a public setting, we find ourselves grandstanding. You know, try, trying to draw attention to ourselves. And we're not even conscious that we're doing that. And yet God, through that person's observation, will help us realize, I'm seeking to get attention and love from people when I should be drawing that from God. Also, God will use his written word to confront us with these motives, these issues in our lives. I've had this experience before where I'm just reading through the Bible and some, you know, something from the Bible just jumps off the page and it's almost as if God is speaking directly to me. I've had that happen at teachings too. And what God says in the Bible is that his word is living and active, that it penetrates the soul, that it judges the thoughts and intentions of people's hearts. So 
by contrast, then, you have healthy self-examination. That's a mouthful. So when we talk about healthy self-examination, Paul says in verse 5, examine yourselves to see whether you're actually in the faith. So he doesn't say, hey, just examine yourself. He gives us a little bit of direction and says, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. So should we live in fear that we don't have a relationship with God? Is that what Paul's trying to do by getting us to examine whether we're actually in the faith? I think there are a number of reasons to think that God isn't trying to strike fear in our hearts. I know a lot of Christians that I've encountered over the years who said, yeah, I, I worry a lot of times about whether I'm actually a Christian, so I've probably asked God to forgive me like a hundred times. And the people who worry about whether God is going to reject them and, and are constantly asking for God's forgiveness probably shouldn't worry too much whether or not they're a believer. In fact, they should experience the sense of security that God wants to offer them. When you look at the word, it tells us that God, through Christ, gives us eternal security. Passages like Romans 8, verse 1 says, there is no condemnation for those who are now in Christ Jesus. In other words, when you forge a relationship with God, the moment you do that, God seals you so that your eternal destiny is set. So you don't have to go around wondering whether or not you're going to out your way out of God's grace and his love. Indeed, he says in 1 John 5, verse 13, he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. How, you know, how can you know that you have eternal life? There's this sense that you have a connection with God that you've encountered him. You know, God doesn't want us sitting around and cowering whenever we enter into his presence. He wants us to be able to come in with bold confidence into his presence, trusting that what Christ has done is sufficient to gain us access to him. And so far far from being afraid of entering God's presence, God wants us to feel this sense of security, knowing that we're in a relationship with him. Should we assume, though, that we, should, we have a relationship with Christ? Some of us just assume, I'm a Christian. And they do so for a number of reasons. One, they say, well, my parents are Christians. Or they might say, I grew up in a Christian home. Well, that's fortunate that you grew up in a Christian home. But growing up in a Christian home doesn't mean that you're a Christian, If you spend the night in your parents' garage, that doesn't make you a car, right? (laughs) What about this? My parents baptized me as an infant in my church. Some people believe that I'm a Christian because of that. Or I've gone to church my entire life. These are common reasons that people have for why they think that they're a Christian. And yet, what what does John say in 1 John 1, verse 12 and 13? He says, to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children not born of natural descent nor of human will, but born of God. Notice he says that you must receive him. 
And then he qualifies that it's not because you were born into the right family. It wasn't a result of human will, but it was something that God did. So Christianity isn't something that you do. It's not a lifestyle. It's placing your trust in what Christ has done. Well, he says in verse five, unless, of course, you fail the test. So there's a question as to whether or not we evaluate ourselves and conclude, maybe I'm not a Christian. Maybe I'm not in the faith. Signs that you fail the test of faith in Christ might be that you're trapped in a religious way of relating to God. This is very common for people who have grown up in church but have never actually entered into a relationship with God. One of the signs that you're trapped in this religious way of thinking or related, relating to God would be bitter envy. Bitter envy describes the corrosive resentment that we feel toward those who have things that we want. And we're stunned at their prosperity. And we feel a perverse delight whenever they feel adversity. Cornelius Plantinga, I think, describes this pretty well. He says, envious people backbite. They deliver congratulations with a smile that really in another light might be taken for a sneer. They acknowledge someone's praise of a rival, but then they push their rival into the shadow of a master. You know how that is. Somebody is talking about how amazing someone is. Oh, he's an amazing guitarist. They're like, well, he's not as good as Eric Clapton, you know. Or I know this guy who's way better than him. He says, the envier gossips. He saves up bad news of others and passes it around like an appetizer at happy hour. <laughs> the envier grumbles. He murmurs. He complains that all the wrong people are getting ahead. Yeah, that's what happens when you are stuck in this religious mentality. You're envious of the people who have things because you believe they don't deserve to have the things that God has given to them because they don't live as morally as you do. Another sign that you're trapped in a religious way of relating to God is a strong sense of superiority. People who are stuck in this religious way of relating to God often try to gain a sense of self-image based on their hard work, their smarts, their savvy, their moral goodness. And a lot of times this becomes the basis upon which they're able to look their nose down at people who don't possess those qualities. Tim Keller in his book, Prodigal God, uh, talks about, you know, quotes Richard Lovelace, and he says, people who are no longer sure that God loves and accepts them in Jesus, apart from their present spiritual achievements, are subconsciously radically insecure persons. Their insecurity shows itself in pride, a fierce defensiveness uh, of, their own self, of their own righteousness, and defensive criticism of others. They, they come naturally to hate other cultural styles in order to bolster their own security and discharge their suppressed anger. It becomes a self-justification for why I'm better than other people. 
Another thing that you find is anger toward God. Asaph, the psalmist, in Psalm 73, verse 13 says, Surely in vain have I kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. Have you ever had that complaint to God? You're trying to live for him. You're persevering. Things are going wrong. Meanwhile, these people all around you who are not living for God, their lives seem to be going pretty well. They're not stumbling along the path of life like you are. And so naturally, we feel a sense of anger because we believe we deserve better because we're good, because we're righteous. Keller says, if you think goodness and decency is the way to merit a good life from God, you'll be eaten up with anger since life never goes as we wish. You'll always feel that you're owed more than you really are getting. You'll always see someone doing better than you in some aspect of life and ask, why this person and not me? After all that I've done, this resentment is your own fault. It's caused not by the prosperity of the other person, but by your own effort to control life through your performance. And finally, a desire to control God through moral living. Again, Keller says, religious people commonly live very moral lives, but their goal is to get leverage over God, to control him, to put him in a position where they think he owes them. Therefore, despite all their ethical fastidiousness and piety, they're actually rebelling against his authority. If you believe that God ought to bless you and help you because you have worked so hard to obey him and be a good person, then Jesus may be your helper, he may be your example, but he is not your savior. You are serving as your own savior. Now, uh, another thing is that you may not feel the impelling power of the Spirit. That's another sign that you fail the test of faith in Christ. Romans 8 verse 9 says, You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God lives in you, and if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. So, One of the things that you'll notice if you don't have a relationship with God is that the presence of the Spirit seems absent in your life. Anyone who has the Spirit has felt at one time or another that inward propulsion towards spiritual things. But for those who've never actually entered into a relationship with God, they may have never felt that. I know one of my friends several years ago was sharing with me how he grew up in this church all of his life. And he was talking about how, you know, in grade school and middle school, he would try to read the Bible, but it just, it really didn't do anything for him. And he would try to pray, but over time, he would run out of steam and just end up not really talking to God for some time. And Throughout high school, he started getting really involved in sports, and that started to distract him from his relationship with God. And so from about his junior year of high school into college, he was sort of in and out of fellowship over a period of time. And so one year, I think during his junior year of college, he decided he was going to go on this big trip with a bunch of people from our college group to the beach. And he was hanging out one night with a bunch of, uh, of friends, And an older Christian was talking to him, 
and asked him, he said, so, okay, explain to me again, when did you actually receive Christ? And my friend talked about how he was really offended that this older Christian asked him that. He's like, well, you know, I mean, I I grew up in this church. I, I went to a Christian school all my life. I mean, you know, are you telling me that I'm not a Christian? And the older Christian was like, I don't know, I'm just asking. And yet, he didn't want to admit it, but he wasn't sure. He couldn't remember a time. So sometime later, he was like in the car with his dad going to a football game, and he was expressing how this older Christian was questioning whether or not he actually had received Christ. He's like, can you believe that he was questioning whether or not I'm a Christian? And his dad was like, well, when did you receive Christ? And he's like, well, um, I don't know. And his dad was like, well, sounds like you should make sure that you're a Christian then. So he said that maybe the night after or a couple days later, he just turned to God and he was just like, look, I believe that I've been a Christian my entire life, but just to make sure, I just want what Jesus did on the cross to apply to the things I've done wrong. And that was it. And he said from that moment on, things started to change. He would open up the Bible and he would actually have an experience with God. He felt this desire to actually serve. He found himself enjoying times of prayer with God, that it wasn't a chore anymore. And so he realized that his entire life Up to the time he was 21, he thought he was a Christian until somebody finally challenged him and said, there's no evidence in your life to suggest that you actually have a relationship with God. Another thing is that spiritual truths contained in Scripture make no sense to you. That's another sign maybe that you don't have the Spirit of God in your life. Think about what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2 verse 14. The person without the Spirit doesn't accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness. And this person cannot understand them because they're spiritually discerned through the Spirit. Now, he's not saying that, like, if you don't have the Spirit of God, you're unable to comprehend what the Bible says. But he's talking about your inability to spiritually appraise the contents of the Bible. In other words, when you read the Bible... The spiritual thoughts that you encounter in the Bible won't resonate with you. You won't see how they apply to your life. Another thing is a lack of love for people. Look at what John says in 1 John 4, verse 7 through 11. Dear friends, let us love one another for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. This is love, not that we love God, but he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we ought to love one another. One of the things that happens to your heart when you actually start a relationship with God is that the overwhelming sense of love that you feel because of what God has done for you starts to spill over into your relationships with other people. The overwhelming gratitude of God's love that you feel in your heart issues in love for other people. 
Now, we should be clear. Genuine Christians also struggle with these from time to time, okay? All of the things that I describe, I have. I mean, there are times where I'm reading the Bible and I'm not getting anything out of it. And that may, that may go on for weeks at a time. And then I realize I've got a controversy with God that's unresolved. Or maybe I'm falling back into this old pattern of trying to perform for God rather than resting comfortably in his grace and being able to access him with boldness. So all of these things can happen to genuine Christians from time to time. But those Christians can also look back at a time when they actually had an encounter with God. Or at least that there was a period of time where they gradually began to trust what God said about Jesus. He says in verse 6, I trust, though, that you will discover that you have not failed the test. After all, Paul linked his apostleship with the Corinthian believers actually coming to Christ. They were actually a sign of his apostleship. He says in verse 7, Now we pray to God that you will not do anything wrong, not that people will see that we have stood the test, but that you will do what is right, even though we may have seemed to have failed. I remember reading this for the first time and thinking, what is he talking about? Maybe you're wondering the same thing. In the New Living Translation, I think that they do a better job kind of rendering what Paul meant. It says, we pray to God that you will not do what is wrong by refusing our correction. I hope we won't need to demonstrate our authority when we arrive. Do the right thing before we come, even if that makes it look like we have failed to demonstrate our authority. He's like, look, we don't care if we look bad so long as you change your mind and change your course. He says in verse 8 and 9, for we can't do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. And we're glad whenever we are weak, but you are strong and our prayer is for your perfection. And when he says perfection, he's not talking about moral perfection. He's talking about maturity. He says, finally, brothers, goodbye. Aim for perfection that is maturity. Listen to my appeal. Be of one mind, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. <laughs> now turn to your neighbor and practice what you've learned. <laughs> 13. And all the saints send... The <laughs> Here's something funny. I remember um, <laughs> back when I was in a seminary, this aged professor who um, was teaching our class on 2 Corinthians, he would tell the same joke over and over again. He'd be like, what's the difference between a holy kiss and an unholy kiss? And we're like, what? He's like, three seconds. We're like, whoa. <laughs> That's kind of creepy. <laughs> he says in verse 13, all the saints send their greetings. And he says, finally, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And there you have it, 2 Corinthians 13. Let's draw a few conclusions. I think, first of all, you should ask yourself this question. Are you certain that you've received Christ? You might be sitting here as I was giving that description and wondering to yourself, you know what? I'm not sure. I'm not sure that I've actually made that decision to receive Christ. If you're not, 
Why not have an encounter with God tonight? He's eager to have that with you. In Revelation 3, verse 20, Jesus says, I stand at the door and I knock. Anyone opens that door, I will come in and dine with him and he with me. You know, the idea of dining with somebody in their home in the ancient world was one of friendship and peace. The Bible says that you're at odds with God if you've never received Christ. But God is eager to have a relationship with you. But it requires you opening the door of your heart. And finally, don't postpone it. You'd be ashamed to think that you lived a good Christian life, that you gave, that you shared Christ, that you did all the moral things that you thought you ought to do, only to come to the end and realize you never actually had a relationship with him. And so I think there's a level of haste here, an urgency to turn to God and make certain that you have the Spirit of God. All right, why don't we just spend a little bit of time praying and then we could just hang out. Yeah, it's amazing that you use us despite <clears throat> our selfish motives in, in trying to serve you and others. And um, I'm grateful that you are just uh, faithful in pointing out problems in our lives, that we don't have to sit around trying to figure out ourselves, but that you reveal to us through your mercy issues so that we can uh, overcome them and um, that we can gain victory, but also to, to be able to help others more effectively. And um, I'm grateful, Lord, that uh, we can have assurance of relationship with you. And I pray for anyone who may wonder whether or not they actually have received Christ, that they would turn to you and uh, assure themselves by turning to you and um, making sure that they are in the faith. And uh, we thank you for anyone who did that. In Jesus' name, amen. This study was recorded at Zenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.